Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 6, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, asking you again to consider commentary for your end of year giving. Commentary is a nonprofit 501c3 organization that publishes Commentary's monthly magazine, produces Commentary's website, and releases every day this podcast you are now listening to. And while we have um, wonderful subscribers and very kind advertisers, we nonetheless run a significant deficit and we depend on the generosity of the commentary community to make sure that we can continue doing what we are doing in a way that seems to be pleasing to you. So uh, I am encouraging you, asking you, and uh, gratefully anticipating your cooperation in uh, this request to consider us for your annual giving. You can do so by going to www.commentary.org slash donate. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today again, uh, one of my oldest friends, uh, the um what what do we call it? the you are the ceo of the high lantern group a a business consultancy firm and you run uh, a group called g100 which is a um ceo roundtable uh daniel cass dan Good to be with you great to have you so dan we're going to talk to you a little later about the legacy of Bob Dole, for whom you worked uh, at the at the end of the 1996 campaign, you've actually been on the podcast before to tell some of the stories of that last week of the Dole campaign, which is absolutely fascinating. But before we get to that, and before we get to uh, discussing uh, the legacy of 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 Bob Dole, who died uh, yesterday at the age of 98, um, let let's let's talk a little about the. Uh, Omicron variant, because you wouldn't really know this from the tone, tenor, and nature of the public discussion of the matter, but relatively speaking, almost all the news in relation to Omicron is good, by which I mean, obviously, it would be better if no such thing existed as the Omicron variant or as, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, covid all that, um, but um, the the general tenor of the data that we are getting so far suggests that it is both. Uh, let's just put it this way: so far on the planet Earth, no single death has been attributed to this variant of the virus. Uh, there was a. An outbreak, the largest known outbreak in Oslo, a corporate Christmas party in Oslo, where uh, 120 people were fully vaccinated and at least half of them were infected with the variant. Um, and according to the, uh, the head of the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, none of the patients have severe symptoms and none is hospitalized. Uh, this goes on South Africa. Um, uh, is showing, you know, all the data suggests that it is um, that it is a very mild transmissibility 
it's a, it's a very transmissible disease and a very mild result if you get it. And yet we are sort of heading inexorably toward, uh, you know, extreme hawkishness uh, in relation to this variant, which, um, as Monica Gandhi, uh, a, you know, the, the epidemiological expert, pediatrician says, you know, what you want <laughs> is for the the Delta variant, which is virulent, to be superseded by another variant that is uh, that that sort of is more adaptable and takes takes its pride of place while being far less dangerous. Uh, that that is the way out of the pandemic. One of the ways out of the pandemic. That's what. You know, it's a little early, but I mean, it's been like six weeks. No one's died from it. Um, and yet here we are, and Noah, you've got some, uh, you know, you've got some stuff to say about what's actually been going on this morning in relation to Omicron and politicians. Yeah. Not to say that I have a fully articulated case of what we're watching here, but, um, it's verging on panic. Uh, the, um, a panic that, and a panic by its definition which is unjustified. Um, the city of New York, according to outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio, who knows if this will survive his administration or not, but he has set established a private sector mandate for vaccinations, which is by far the strongest in the country. Uh, in uh, According to the mayor, beginning on the 27th of December, um, they're all private sector workers will be required to be vaccinated. It is Vax- important to note, by the way, that his term ends on the 31st right. of December. So yes. he has put this he has put this in place so that four days later, somehow his successor, uh, you know, can be either criticized or take the take an easy win for suspending this right. this this rule or not uh, among half a dozen know. other initiatives along those lines like the dissolution the, the of, uh, of advanced placement high schools for example i mean this is the sort of thing you can reverse with a pen stroke and get a lot of plaudits for it so he's just i don't know what he's doing but anyway so uh, all private sector workers public and private sector, basically everybody in the city who works uh, will be required to have a vaccination uh proven vaccination that requires two doses at least up from one dose um, and the vaccination proof for indoor dining, fitness, and entertainment um, proof of vaccination will be required for children ages five and up. Um, very strong and strict measure designed to restrict not bad outcomes from infection, but to reduce caseloads. And uh, this dovetails with a report that I was reading in Politico this morning about how Democrats are sort of beside themselves over Joe Biden's disastrous polling and what they can do to fix it. And universally, they say we have to keep doing what we've been doing, only we have to talk more about what we've been doing. They're just not communicating well enough. You know, that's sort of um, unsatisfying, uh, you know, self-congratulatory nonsense in my view. But buried in that in that piece was uh, something from White House insiders, whoever they are, um, which indicates that the, the Biden administration believes that their, uh, their current headwinds that they're facing are due to COVID cases, not hospitalizations, not deaths, not bad outcomes, transmissibility alone, um, case rates. And if you're, if you're tethering your political fate to something as uncontrollable as we know now, it is uncontrollable as the rate of the spread of this disease and the rate at which it's picked up by testing, 
um, which is itself something that's sort of uh, unpredictable and, and is, is varies from month to month uh, according to the, the state of the spread of the virus generally and general apprehension around it. Uh, it's a sort of thing that you're, you're sort of hitching your wagon to a, just a, a, an out of control train here. I mean, that's a really mixed metaphor, but you're you're really um, tethering your fate to something that you have you absolutely no control over, no agency over. Train. Well, an out of control a, train that has a cart that's uh, that's right. also out cart. of control. But it suggests okay. some thinking in the White House that I think is really going to prove rather disastrous because they're saying, listen, we have no agency here, no control over our own political destinies. Uh, it's just it's up to the to the this virus and whatever it wants to do. And that to me is a wrong, false and B um, going to prove to be a, a real problem for this White House in very short order. Abe. And uh, just so people have a handle on what we're talking about when we're talking about this, this new spread in cases, there was a piece uh, in The Washington Post on Saturday about uh, some researchers in Cambridge, Mass, who sequenced the uh, did, did some genetic sequencing on the new on the new variant and found out that it has a shocking amount of genetic material in common with the common cold, um, which could suggest I'm obviously amateur, nothing. I, I, I am not a virologist. I'm not an MD, um, but it could suggest in, in concert with what we have observed statistically here that we're kind of going crazy over something that is the equivalent of a common cold. Well, in South the- Africa, I just want to point out that uh, to, to contribute to that, uh, the South African Medical Research Council uh, reports that of the 42 patients uh, in um, Gauteng province where Omicron was first spotted, uh, our friend David Bonson sent this to me, uh, most were actually hospitalized for other reasons. Their infections were only detected because hospitals are testing all incoming patients for COVID. Many did not have respiratory symptoms, and the average length of hospital stay was 2.8 days, far shorter than the average of 8.5 days recorded in the region over the past 18 months. So that's yet another data point to support what Abe was saying. Well, a coronavirus is a type of common cold, right? Yeah. Most of them are rhinoviruses, but about like right. 20% of common colds are coronaviruses. Right, but, just have, but, but most of them, uh, or in fact, all the others that have been sequenced, don't, ha- don't share this degree of uh, genetic information with, with, the, with the cold. Right, Christine? Well, I just, to, know, to Noah's point about um, the political messaging, it strikes me that the, the Biden administration has this unique opportunity with this variant and the timing of it now just before the holidays to say to do a real pivot that acknowledges everything we've been saying and say, look, you know what, up till now, we've really kind of had to keep the alarmist sentiments out there. We've we've over we've done masking, we've done everything we can. But now we're shifting to a period of time where we have to change our mindset about this virus. And here are all the ways that we should change our mindset. But you're all adults. We're going to treat you like adults. You have access to vaccination and boosters. You have access to all the knowledge that we do about you know, social distancing and masking. Make your own risk assessments. Make your own decisions, just as you would during a very bad flu epidemic that we get every few years in this country. And here's why we're going to move on in this way. And they could have all their bullet points and all their charts. They could do all of that. But to, I mean, this is something that Noah has been saying for months now, and I think it's accurate. They are somehow politically invested in a message of alarmism. But at the same time, they're not doing the one thing that a lot of people can see is undermining that message. 
all the people pouring over the border ha- aren't tested, aren't vaccinated. And when you when the Biden administration is asked about that, they either deny the problem or they say, well, there's nothing we can do about that. Actually, that's the one area where they could exercise federal power to to well, protect public health. They're exercising that power at every other border, meeting every air, meeting exactly. every every airline terminal, every every point of entry in the United States in which people enter legally. Daniel Cass, you work as a kind of message. I hate this word, but messaging strategist and 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 um, have done so uh, for politicians on political campaigns in in a White House. Um, let me propose a Machiavellian theory uh, that is, I'm sure, almost certainly not true, but could be but could be interesting as a debating point, which is what if all of this is what how about if the Biden people know that Omicron is actually benign and what they want to do is talk hawkishly so that they can say that what they did in December killed Omicron like as a as a matter of strategy. Uh, would that, I mean, you know, if this were a bad novel, you could see how some cynical, you know, some cynical mastermind of political intrigue might come up with something like this, scare everybody, and then you declare victory when, when, when there's no reason for fear, and you know that there's no reason for fear. Well, I don't know what their motivation is, but you have to remember the administration is facing a colossal failure in their effort to, by executive order, mandate employers to vaccinate all employees. It's been so far defeated in the courts and ultimately will, I think, not be upheld by any court. Um, There are other mandates, by the way. Um, If you're a federal contractor, and it is amazing the number of businesses that are federal contractors, that if you're inside, you have to wear a mask, regardless of where the office is. So you have businesses telling people, time to come back to the office. They've been happily working at home without a mask, They have to come back to the office three days a week and wear a mask, all because of a federal mandate. And so this is a massive policy failure. And um, I don't think the Biden administration knows how to get out from under it. Well, do you think they know that it's a massive policy failure? That's that's my question. It's self-evident. It's been knocked down, though. It's been knocked down in the courts. Um, There is no business, unless you're a hospital, that supports it. Um, it It is exacerbated tensions between employers, many of whom, by the way, are sympathetic to the Biden administration and supported them and the administration. And also, and this is interesting, negotiations between large employers and unions who hate these mandates. So, I mean, unless they're completely misreading this, they know this is a failure. And in a certain way, maybe they thought, oh, here comes Omicron. Now we have yet another reason to justify strict federal measures. This is going to fail, too. But I, John, I don't think that <clears throat> I don't think the administration has the wherewithal to uh, sort of scheme in the way that that you're asking about, uh, sort of with the understanding that the variant is mild, and then they can declare uh, victory over it as if uh, the, that victory is the result of their own actions. Nevertheless, they will capitalize on it in that very way, just the same. Uh, with with I think I think the panic is real. And the uh, triumphalism will be false. Uh, that that is that is, I think, w- the way it will play out. All right. So unfortunately, John's going to have to duck out of this conversation for the rest of it. But uh, we're going to continue with Dan uh, and talk about uh, Bob Dole's passing. But uh, but briefly, I wanted to touch base with what Abe was saying just before 
John had to leave um, regarding this notion that the administration will take credit for whatever happens. I mean, at what point are they going to be allowed to take credit? Because they're not doing this based on any assumption of political, uh, the political taking the temperature in the in the political environment and suggest and, and listening to their instincts, because when they listen to their instincts, as they have on occasion, it leads them to the conclusion that, wow, we actually have to get out of this thing like we promised we would on a variety of other occasions. And they keep getting dragged back into it by the various constituent groups, notably the public health apparatus in particular, that lobbies in public for the most draconian of uh, uh, mitigation measures whenever you have this sort of a spike. And there's always going to be a spike, as you suggest, Abe, if we're talking about something that's evolving into a common cold, it will be part of the environment for the rest of our adult lives. At what point are they going to be allowed to take a victory lap here? Or will they just have to declare victory and retreat? We, this is what we've been saying forever. But where's the will going to come from that? Well, I, I think it will look like what it has what it has looked like for a long time now, which is that um, they can sort of articulate that we're getting ever closer to the end without ever getting there. So they can be they can be triumphalist about each battle without with while saying the war is not over um, and just extending that and dragging that on and on and on. Is that a victory lap, though? I mean, that just sort of seems more like, OK, well, you got to keep your guard up vigilance forever and in perpetuity. Uh, until a Republican becomes president again, because then eventually there, if, if the if the political environment, Christine, if voters want a way out of this, as they seem to have in January, in, in November of 2020, when they voted for Joe Biden, because he said he would wrap his arms around the virus, tame it. We're not going to shut down the country. We're going to shut down the virus. That's what they voted for. They didn't get it. They're going to find a candidate who will give them an out. And if it's not a Democratic candidate, it will be a Republican. No, I think that's an important point, especially because the other thing we saw over the weekend was a variant of a uh, of a lot of leaking out of the vice president's office and a high staff turnover and a lot of unhappiness with her political performance, which suggests that the bench is not really healthy right now. If, if Biden, even if Biden doesn't run uh, what that looks like. But I think the weird thing to me is that what they the, the Democrats got a pretty good hint in the off uh, year elections recently about the economy's role in voters minds right now. They're very concerned about possibility, you know, about inflation, about the long-term economic health of the country, about all the spending that's going on in Congress. So the weird thing to me is that they, there's also an opening there for the Biden administration to say, you know, we've been we've been focused heavily on the economy. We've passed all this money to, to send to you to, to keep the economy healthy. They are looking at the plummeting Dow and all the stuff that happens when a new variant occurs. And instead of trying to calm the markets with their rhetoric, they're inciting all kinds of volatility that I think voters who are paying attention, which, you know, the average voter might turn on the news and say, oh, the markets are going crazy again and think, but Biden was going to shut down the virus, not the country. I mean, it, it's it's feeding into uh, undermining that message even further. And people worry about these economic issues. It's one of the it's I think it's number one right now in voters' minds, the economy. Dan, it, it, please go. Isn't the problem that they set the goalposts in exactly the wrong place? That by trying to eliminate a recurring public health issue, which may go on forever to varying degrees of risk, it can never be defeated, at least in the way they framed it. And had they instead said, victory is some sort of normality, people traveling, kids at school, people in college, less mask wearing, we would have all been willing to accept every once in a while, there has to be a little bit of a retreat because there'll be some future variant that might be more dangerous and be willing to do it. But instead of making normality or the return to normality, the test, 
they have this utterly unrealistic goal of eliminating the um, uh, eliminating public health threat. And as a result, they're at odds with everyone. People who want to put on plays, people who want to send their kids to school, businesses that want to figure out how to operate with normal risk. And they're the enemy of all types of normal risk taking. I mean, to be fair, there would definitely be resistance to even the notion that we have to retreat given you know, con- uh, conditions in the environment at some point. There, were, there will always be a faction, a small faction, but a vocal one that would resist any and all efforts to engage in that sort of mitigation strategy. But at least it would be, you know, an ask. Part of the problem the administration has is that they don't ask of anything of, of, the, of your patients. They assume that they can just take it. And, and that you will be amenable to whatever new imposition is, is on you because, you know, you're supposed to accept by cultural osmosis, you know, that this variant is really bad or this case rate is really bad here. And all this re- necessitates these dramatic interventions without ever making the case for them. And they never they never talk about the deliverables because they can't deliver anything. Well, and at the same time, they use the virus and the pandemic generally to excuse their own inability to do things that actually is in their power to do things like crime, for example. We've seen a lot of blue state you know, uh, leaders and, and, and Biden as well. I think Jen Psaki just last week blamed the crime spike, the homicide spike in particular on COVID. She's like, well, it's because of COVID. Really, it's not actually it was starting before COVID. It has to do with a complicated mix of, you know, more liberal uh, progressive prosecutions and and the pullback of the, of the cops in certain areas after Black Lives Matter uh, protests a few summers ago. But it's I just find that even the people, the good, responsible, liberal minded people who have who voted for Biden and were really happy to see Trump gone. Their patience is fraying. I see it. I mean, this is completely anecdotal, obviously, but I see it in my liberal circle of friends here in D.C. I see it in in general in a lot of liberal cities where people are like, really, again, we're doing this again. But we did everything we're supposed to do. Why are they scolding us? Why are they telling us we have to do this again? It's frustrating. This reminds me of another part of this Politico piece briefly that I wanted to to read this quote, quote, you know, just relating to what the White House is thinking, quote, virus cases could fall in warmer weather and inflation should begin to subside and Americans will begin to feel the tangible benefits of the party's agenda. You know, that could turn the the, the ship around here. But this is a very passive construction that suggests that the White House believes they really are not in command of their own fates. When all of this, they have some agency over and some control over and have give, put themselves in this condition. If you're uh, predicating your your political success on case rates, for example, you're going to have a bad time. Whereas if you were predicating it on negative outcomes, health outcomes, hospitalization rates, death rates, you might actually have a case to make because interventions like vaccines and even mask mandates could prevent a lot of that sort of thing. Inflation could ease. But if you're injecting trillions of dollars into the economy to subsidize demand while there's too few goods, consumer goods for them to chase after, you're going to have bad inflation rates. That has everything to do with your actions, not the, the, the vicissitudes of nature. And Americans could feel the legislative benefits that Democrats are you know, pursuing in Congress. But they literally mailed everyone a check and it didn't even register. I mean, if that's what you're, you're putting, pushing all your chips in on this, it, it's, it seems like it's doomed to fail. And there are other things you could do than rather than do the exact same thing you've been doing for a year amid the rubble, you know? Well, I think... I just wanted just to jump back to Dan's point about goalposts. Um, I agree that uh, that uh, sort of eradicating the the virus was the wrong goalpost. Um, it was an unrealistic ambition. 
but at least it was an ambition. And I think we're now in this strange no man's land where they don't really articulate um, a, a, an end uh, point to this, right? We sort of act sometimes as if the goal is to eradicate it all the time. Uh, when, when Biden was asked about shutting down the virus last week by Steve Ducey, he said, well, we have to beat it back before we can shut it down. So we're sort of in the land of competing metaphors um, and I think no one quite has a handle on what's going on. And uh, we were supposed to have defeated it uh, or at least have our sort of summer of freedom by July 4th. And now we're here and now we're shutting down. And now we don't know how many <clears throat> boosters we're going to need. And, and things vacillate back and forth and we're winning and then we're losing. And I have to say, strangely, is this not a little reminiscent of the kind of complaints people had about our policy in Afghanistan? What are we doing? What are the metrics? What's the end goal? Uh, granted, it's a very different type of policy, but um, I th I th it's 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 um, darkly ironic to me that uh, there is something about this sort of fog of it all now that no one quite understands where we're headed with this. And what did the administration do with Afghanistan? Declare victory and retreat, disastrously. But nevertheless, that was the policy. Um, and was, I think there's there might be a reason why they're not declaring victory. Um, in part, as long as there continues to be a fight, it has cultural overtones. And I don't think they're completely willing to abandon the culture war, which is now so closely li linked with all discussions about COVID. I would tell you, I think American society at large is willing to give up big parts of the culture war. I speak to a lot of large business leaders who run big headquarters where people have come back to work two or three days a week. Most people are vaccinated, if not boosted, and run manufacturing sites where 25% of the people are vaccinated. And they refuse to respond to awards, bribes, coercion, whatever. And they've made their peace with that. They hate a federal mandate. And they just figure this is better than a culture war. We're going to figure out how to operate with some people who disagree for whatever reason. And I think that's where a lot of the country is. The administration can't go that way because it does give up this wedge that they have, which is this all about culture or Trump followers or extremists. And the political power of that is irresistible. Speaking of vacuous cultural signifiers, Christine brought up the vice president. And I'd like to uh, get your get your take on a weekend of a disastrous, nightmarish PR weekend for Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, we declare it anti-bullying week because I feel like that. No, not. Well, can we just put it off at least for 48 hours while we do a little bullying ourselves? Um, it, I, I don't know if all you guys were following the news. You could probably, you know, fill in some of the blanks for me, but I had followed it very somewhat closely and to the extent that um, there were some stories around the people, the exodus of staffers from her office and a lot of on background comments from people around the vice president and around her staff talking about how she's, you know, sort of detached. She doesn't do her homework. She gets really mad when people notice that she doesn't do her homework in part because she has no idea what she's talking about. Half the time she's on these, these stages, the dais of this or the other event, and she's not properly briefed. And the people on background are saying, well, it's because she's not reading our briefing books, which is a self-interested quote, but nevertheless, uh, something that you could see probably has fair amount of, uh, of basis to it. Um, Dan, I want to get your, as a, as a historian of American politics, uh, the extent to which we've seen any of this previously. 
because yeah, I don't think is, I have. Yeah, it's 18 months ahead of cycle. Normally, this type of back uh, stabbing, the blind leaks, the staff complaining usually happens once there's a competitive primary underway. The fact that it's happening now is kind of astonishing. Um, but I also notice a pattern, and I want to be careful about how, the way I phrase it, but I think there is a, um, um, it's a kind of tell that emerges in these sorts of stories when it involves women political leaders, which is somewhere somebody says, a defender, if she were a man, dot, 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 this wouldn't be happening. We heard this about Amy Klobuchar. We heard this about Hillary Clinton. Um, and there's some truth to that. But I also think it is so defensive in its form. I usually now read it as a signal that as a boss, she really is a monster. And um, I think uh, I think that's what's happening here. And I think it, I would not be surprised that this is the beginning of the end. You know, you know, what struck me about all of this is that um, several of the people who spoke off, you know, anonymously said that she would get angry when she 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 would go unprepared because she hadn't read the briefing books and she would become angry and and yell at her staff for not properly preparing her. And they all mentioned that she was deeply insecure. And I and when I read that, I first of all, I had a little sympathy for her. And I actually I have to I was like, oh, and then that very quickly passed because she's not one of my favorite politicians. But I thought what she lacks is that she she's aware enough of not being able to manage this job that she does have insecurity and then she lashes out when when she when she's exposed for that versus like the AOCs of the world who are wildly overconfident and will go on Instagram live and talk about Middle East peace and they know nothing but they don't care they think they're so they're overconfident and she might perhaps be a little underconfident. And, and I would also lay some blame at Biden's feet for this, because it does sound like a, a vice president's office that is getting a lot of mixed signals from the White House. And whatever her effort, she has been pretty respectful of of the White House being the lead, even as they like put her on as, you know, the Biden-Harris administration and all this stuff. But the ultimate point is that she was always a bad choice. She was always a token choice. It was outlined explicitly why she was chosen as a token. And for that reason, she started way, way behind the eight ball because there's no way for someone to overcome tokenism as your main appeal because people will question your competence. Well, I, I don't think that's fair. I mean, if the allegations that her staffers are making are true, that she doesn't do her homework, there's an easy way to fix that. Do the homework. Do your homework. Yes, that's Read true. the briefing books before you get, you know, before you take the stage at the National Space Council, learn something about Earth orbit. But know? it's easier. It's easier also to, to Dan's point. It's easy. It's been an always an easy out to say they're attacking her because she's a woman. Um, and while I agree, I think in terms of style and uh, there are things that women are, are judged more unfairly and harshly on if they're if they're in a political role. But in her case, I think the likability factor has been judged just as it has with male politicians. She's just not that likable. She doesn't connect people. But but Dan, when you say it's it looks like the beginning of the end. What are we talking about here? What what does the end actually mean in her case? Does it mean sort of that her her reputation um, is uh, beyond uh, making a comeback? Uh, is is cannot be rehabbed? The race to succeed Joe Biden after one term has already started, and um, in any normal situation, she would be the presumptive front runner. And remember, this is coming after a fairly long period of high profile and. Um, popular, unpopular, largely successful vice presidents against the historical norm. Um, Al Gore, Dick Cheney, Joe Biden, whatever you may have thought of them, they all had their own brand. They were not people who just went to funerals. They had their own initiatives. 
This is the first vice president in close to 20 years who has no brand, has no achievements, is linked to no major policy initiatives. Um, so the beginning of the end, this is where the successor of Joe Biden, whether it's after one term or after two, has already started early and she's being discounted. I'm not saying it's going to be changed, but this is a pretty weak out of the gates positioning. The prospect of Joe Biden not running for a second term also raises a lot of uh, unknowns um, that none of which likely play out well for this particular administration. But that's speculation for another day. Before we close out, we want to get to uh, eulogizing the late senator from Kansas, uh, former Senate Majority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, and Republican presidential nominee in 1996, the late Bob Dole. Um, Dan, you have some thoughts on this to sad day. Um, yeah, look, uh, first of all, in, in many ways, uh, uh, Dole's life has been written about now for almost three decades. Um, war hero, Senate, great colleague, nice guy. And I think generally that's how he's being written about. Um, and there's not much more to be said on that front. So death at 98, um, after a long public life, uh, deserves celebration. And I think he will receive a lot of praise. I think the deeper question for us is what role, if any, did Dole play in the evolution of the Republican Party after Reagan? Um, and I worked very briefly, as John mentioned, on uh, Dole's campaign in 96. Um, so there were literally hundreds of people who worked for Dole over decades in politics. I had one tiny, tiny sliver of visibility into him. And at that point, um, I think his career was already pretty close to the end. He, he was at a losing campaign. He knew it. He was surrounded by every faction of the Republican Party advising him. And I think that's what's told us something about Dole and the emptiness that was at the heart of Republican politics post-Reagan, which rather than asserting a new direction, a new set of ideas, an ideology, it was Republican politics without ideology. So around him was um, Don Rumsfeld and Paul Manafort and Margaret Tutwiler and his Senate staff. And Dole had all these people and listened to none of them. And, um, you know, our friend Tevi Troy in his newsletter has a terrific appreciation and mentions Dole's convention speech in 96, which was written by the novelist Mark Helprin, who wrote The Winter's Tale. Um, I think John hates the speech. Um, I actually reread it over the weekend. There are some beautiful passages, but it is a weird, long, and boring speech in many ways. Um, characteristic of Dole. So I, I, I think the most, I'll, I'll end with this maybe and, and hear your reaction. I think the most important part of the Dole campaign is they lost in New Hampshire to Pat Buchanan and came actually very, very close to pulling out of that race. He placed second, Lamar Alexander close third in the week leading to New Hampshire. He was actually, Dole was in third place. And Dole said afterwards, had he placed third, he would have dropped out of the race Buchanan would have won. I'm not sure whether Buchanan would have gone on, but if you want to understand the evolution of the party in the decades since, I think it begins arguably then or even in Buchanan's earlier 92 run, where um, anti-immigration and general crackpotism started to become center place in Republican politics. 
It's very interesting. Um, I don't know if I have a, a, a articulated articulable thesis around this because um, I was very young in uh, 1996, 1992, I was 10 and 1996, I was uh, what, 14, so 15, 14. So quite young. Um, and just barely aware of it. But my academic work around the, the 90s has uh, recently ticked up and I've been reading a lot of these speeches and polling data in the middle of the decade. And um, one of the themes that seems to emerge from this particular period is, the, as you say, the sacrifice of ideology on the Republican side, but replacing that with the idea of policing public morality. Um, public morality had become a profoundly important feature of the of uh, Republican political rhetoric, and it was buttressed by a lot of polling data suggesting that the good times, you know, as good as they were, had been uh, accompanied by a public moral decay that was celebrated in popular culture and epitomized by the sitting president, who well before anybody knew about the Lewinsky allegations, was known to be something of a lech and a bore. And, uh, you know, just, just generally a, a good time guy, um, which had allowed the culture to coarsen and decay. And that featured very prominently in, in Bob Dole's run. And it seemed to be rejected rather wholly by the culture, uh, the, the pop culture around them. And then 20 years hence, it's been adopted by the pop culture and rejected by Republicans. Republicans who had to make a lot of moral compromises to support Trump. Uh, who was very much a similar character in, in, in the way that Joe, uh, or, uh, Bill Clinton behaved. Um, but the popular culture has made this weird turn towards policing public morality now, uh, their own version of it. Nevertheless, uh, we were privy to the idea in the late 1990s that public morality was just an antiquated idea, something that just fuddy-duddies obsessed over. And, you know, uh, puritanical critiques of the way people live now is, is the province of uh, Republicans exclusively who can't abide by the way you live behind closed doors. And that was you know, something silly that they were obsessed over. And the roles have totally reversed. Um, but in that sense, Bob Dole had a big point. <laughs> he was the one articulated, you know, he was the guy out there saying heroin chic and Kate Moss are destroying the popular culture and forced Bill Clinton to adopt that critique himself too. There were a lot of successes uh, that, that the Republican crusade against the, the eroding public morality enjoyed that we, we can only appreciate decades hence, but replacing a governing ethos in the form of ideology with uh, policing public morality and the fluid perceptions of what that should mean um, was a failed tactic then. So it's interesting to see the left essentially adopt it now. I will say one caveat to that is about sex. The left has gone, continued like a freight train off, you know, running off the rails on that, because I, I mean, in Dole's time, I would never have expected to see a major like an MTV Music Awards or Super Bowl halftime show where women were pole dancing women in their 50s. I'm like, J-Lo, no, you have children. But that's now common. Like it, nobody even blinks when they see that. So that's the one caveat I'll say to that. Meanwhile, they do want to police how other people define sex and, and gender, obviously. But I, I will say I was a little older when when Dole was a, a public figure. But the thing I remember about him in retrospect and in contrast to what we see now, particularly with Joe Biden, is that he was he was he seemed very disciplined when he'd give his speeches. And, you know, you knew he was reading a speech and wasn't like he wasn't like Clinton with the kind of, you know, aw shucks really connecting with the audience that feeding off the audience in that way. It was when he was sort of on the campaign trail or just, you know, doing his job and got caught by the press 
going off script. He was very empathetic. He was very wry and funny in those moments in a way that was clearly unscripted and clearly more of who he was. And I and I think about that now when I think about the relentless push for everyone to understand that Joe Biden is empathetic that we saw during the campaign and in the first couple of months of his presidency. And that was very scripted. Like the empathy there is scripted, whereas someone like Dole, a, a, a different generation of of uh politician in some sense, even though they're, they're not that far away in age, that was real. And he tried to control that. Like, that's not something he revealed all the time to the public. So that's a real change that I've noticed in, in 20 or 30 years. I just want to note that uh, between the period where um, there was this vacuum where there should have been a articulated uh, Republican vision and the reversal uh, in uh, uh, stances on morality that that Nova talks about. Uh, there was this chapter that we're sort of having addressed, which is that there there was a Republican vision uh, during the George W. Bush years, um, but it was linked to a military effort that the public soured on, um, and I think that had a huge part in shaping or or in the in the shapelessness of of what followed on the right. Not not to get too far from from the topic. Which <laughs> no, that does, that makes sense. Well, I, uh, by the way, I think that's right. And um, Dole represented that because he was a war hero and always stood for interventionism, which was a core part of Republican ideology until the Iraq War under George W. Bush. I think you're absolutely right, Abe. Um, but I mean, I do think that on most other things. Dole was looking backwards. There's this great, amazing line in his convention speech that says, let me be the bridge to an America that only the unknowing call myth. Let me be the bridge to a time of tranquility, faith, and confidence in action. Now, only a speechwriter can say something like that. Nobody actually speaks like that anymore. And it has no role in American politics or much less Republican politics. And I do think it was a signal and a little bit of a white flag that there was nothing going forward. Um, George W. Bush tried that, um, and I think it was exhausted by the end of his administration. The life of Senator Bob Dole, a statesman, a war hero, and a uh, towering figure in American public life. Dan Cass, thank you so much for joining us. Um, John will be back with us tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. For the absent John Podhoritz, uh, Abe and Christine, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.